title on the screen, Part 1, was a warning, and I told him, yes, it is. We're going to start this morning with a little illustration. My guess is that nobody remembers this, even though I did this illustration about 10 years ago. But uh, I'm trusting that most of you have slept at least once since then and have forgotten that. So we're going to start this morning. So I'm going to recruit a couple volunteers. I guess that's an oxymoron, isn't it? But that's what I'm going to do. Mariana, come here. Come here. What? Has everybody, has anybody or everybody met Mariana? This is Mariana. If you haven't, now you know. Come here. Okay. And Adrian, I want you to come up here too. Okay. I have a very simple task for you. I'm going to, want, I'm going to ask you to walk from here to the uh, table there where the pulpit is. Okay. okay. That's all I want you to do. All right. And Adri Adrian, this is Adrian. Adrian's going to help you. Okay. But there's one thing I didn't tell you. Put this on. And Adrian, you too. Okay, I'm going to point you in the right direction. Now, I know you can see out at the bottom, so come right here. Come right here. Okay. All right. No, I'm not going to do that. This is not pin the tail on the Gordon. So we're going to, we're going to, okay. Now, now, now you're going to help her, okay? All right. Now, now, all I can promise is that I'll do my very best to make sure you don't get hurt. Okay, I promise. I promise that I'll do my best. All right, now, before you go, I'm going to recruit two other people. All right, uh, let's have Daniel come on up. And I, I miss Abigail. I want Abigail to come up. Abigail, welcome back from Scotland, girl. You know, she did a semester abroad in Scotland. Okay, Daniel, you're going to be the first one to stand here. Okay. okay? Mm -hmm. And you're going to hold this. Not typecasting, I promise. And Abigail, you're going to come. Well, actually, I guess we need you to come over this way because I didn't ask them to go that far. And I want you to stand right about here, okay? All right. Now, you think you can do this, ladies? <laughs> Don't you love the confidence, huh? Okay, on your market set, go. No hurry. No hurry. We have all morning since this is just part one. So, okay. So far, so good. So far, so good. So far, so good. Oh, oh, a little bit of an obstacle there, huh? Okay. All right, just go around it. Just go around the obstacle. Go around the obstacle. So far, so good. Oh, they're doing so well. They're doing so well. Okay, just come on. You got, just got to get around it. Got to get around it. Hey, you're almost there. You're almost there. Just keep going. A little bit further. Oh, don't bump into that. You're fine. Okay. Hey, they did it. You're done. I see, that wasn't nearly as hard as you thought it would be, was it? <laughs> if looks could kill, huh? Thank you. You are all such wonderful sports. We appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, she, Abigail said I can take back my sin here. So, okay, that little exercise in foolishness actually has a point. Believe it or not, this morning, there's actually a point to that. I want you to remember that illustration as we move into this morning's message. And remember what happens to somebody who's trying to walk but is unable to see clearly, okay? It's hard, if not impossible, to find your way walking through life, walking along the path of life when you're blinded, even in part. It's difficult for us to see where we're going or to see the hazards in your path. Now, they had a pretty wide walkway. I could have made it tougher. I put a few little obstacles in their way. All they had to kind of do was walk straight. But you get the idea. If you have your Bibles, turn with me now first to Ephesians chapter 4. 
And we're going to begin reading with verse 17 through verse 20. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. So first, to relate this passage of Scripture to our opening illustration, I want to note verse 17 and 18, which says that the Gentiles, and of course here really all we're talking about when we say Gentiles is those who are not believers in Christ, but the Gentiles are darkened in their understanding. When you're blindfolded, what do you see? You see pretty much darkness. You don't see very much. You might see a little bit of light, depending on what kind of blindfold you have on. You might be able to make out shapes, depending on how well blindfolded you are. But your view of where you are walking is darkened if you are blindfolded. And you cannot see clearly how or where to walk. So Paul writes to the Ephesians that the way the Gentiles live their lives, the way they walk, and that's a euphemism for the way they live their lives, is futile. It's vain, it's worthless, it's empty. Why? Why is this true? Because their understanding of life is darkened. It's blinded in some ways. And what's more, they are willfully ignorant of the truth because their hearts are hard. So consequently, what happens? Scripture says they give themselves up to sensuality and every kind of of impurity. That means essentially they kind of go with the flow. They don't even bother to try to flee these sins. They don't try to seek any kind of positive change in their lives to struggle or to fight against these things in any way. Does this sound familiar? Open the newspaper. Turn on the television news and we see the practical outworkings of these kinds of things each and every day all around us don't we? We see the world. We see it around us. What's more, we see some of this impurity, much of this sensuality, and it's not only tolerated, but it's actually celebrated. And that's where we're going to begin this morning. But today, and continuing then with part two next week, we're going to be looking at several verses in the next chapter. We started with Ephesians 4. We're going to be reading several verses in the next chapter, Ephesians 5, and we're going to read some of that surrounding context. Think for a moment about this passage we're going to read here. This is on your bulletin cover this morning as well. And we're going to look at the verses that preceded here shortly. If you're in Ephesians 4, still flip over to Ephesians 5. And let's begin with verse 15 of Ephesians 5, which says, Look carefully then how you walk. There we see that word again. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So today is part one of a two-part message called Walking Wisely. Part one's subtext is from this passage of Scripture, and it's called The Days Are Evil. Next week, part two's subtext is also from this passage. And we're going to call that Redeeming the Time. And of course, in this uh, version, it's, uh, it's making the best use of the time. Same idea. 
Remember a chapter earlier when we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul encourages us not to walk as the Gentiles do. Now walk is simply a way of saying how you live your life. That is, that's your behavior. And it's a consistent theme in this letter all throughout Ephesians and especially in these two chapters. In fact, Paul uses this word walk, some of your translations say live, five different times in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Ephesians. This is part of how the Word of God serves as a guide to life. It's a guide to our attitudes. It's a guide to our behaviors, just as uh, Adrian was guiding Mariana in her walk across the auditorium. But that's more like uh, having, having her walk with her blindfold off. She can see because the Word of God is a guide to life. It's also a window on what the world looks like. It's uh, a window at what any of us used to look like and still would look like apart from Christ. Does anyone want to dispute Paul's contention in verse 16 that the days are evil? Don't we look all around and see that? I've talked to so many people in uh, different conversations over the past several months who've noticed the moral freefall that our culture seems to be experiencing. And it's very true. One example is from a few months ago when much of the nation celebrated an unprecedented event in sports. It wasn't someone or some team winning a championship. It wasn't a scoring title. It wasn't a new record. It was the first active NBA player revealing that he was gay. Now, none of us should be under any illusion that there are not homosexuals in many and varied professions all around us. The fact that there is a player in the NBA who is gay is no shock at all. Perhaps the most revealing thing, however, about this story related to our message today was not the fact that there is a gay player in the NBA, but that it became such a national celebration. One TV sports announcer said, this is a great day for the NBA. The Twitter world was all abuzz with congratulations. Now, this is a player that very few fans ever heard of. He played last season for my favorite team, and I'd never even heard his name before. But publicly declaring himself to be gay was the best career move that he ever made, because now everybody knows his name. There's a very good chance, according to some sports experts, basketball experts, that he would not have even made an NBA roster next season. But now, coming out as gay, I've heard many people say it's more likely that he actually will. So why is this troubling? Well. We're not here this morning and we're not going to spend this morning lamenting the reality of homosexuality in our culture. That would be like lamenting the fact that there are liars. It's the fallen world we live in. And to some degree, we don't want to elevate one category of sin over another. We're not going to gay bash. We're not going to go into why and how the Bible clearly declares such behavior as sin. Maybe that's for another message in the future. Because though the Bible does list homosexual behavior among a litany of sins, the reality of this sin in our midst is only the tip of the iceberg. In a, in a very real way, it's not really appropriate to single it out. In our case today, it's just kind of a handy, very well-documented example of sin in our culture. We could realistically say that this is to be expected in our sexually sick and broken culture. We might just as easily use selfishness as an example of the sin in our culture. But selfishness isn't often celebrated as much as uh, 
homosexuality is these days. Anyway, the passage of scripture that came to mind repeatedly as a week's worth of celebratory coverage continued on sports news and regular news and entertainment news and everywhere else was this. After declaring not just homosexuality, because we're not just singling this out, but a long list of other sins to be a sin against the holy God, the Apostle Paul wrote this to the Romans church in Romans chapter 1, verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Or to quote a different version, they know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. This is where we are in our culture, celebrating sin, giving approval, even encouraging others in their sin. Now, sin's always present in any culture, but I think the reason it feels to many Christians today like the culture has reached a tipping point is the reality that our Western culture has to some degree been shaped by Judeo-Christian principles, but has now gone beyond the shame that previously seemed to accompany most sinful behaviors. It's now to the point of actually celebrating what wasn't even talked about in polite company maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago. So as believers in America, we're really spoiled. We've gotten somewhat complacent because for most of our history, much of our culture was significantly informed by and later at least gave lip service to a Christian understanding of sin. Even when the reality is that we are anything but a truly Christian nation, have not been for some time, maybe ever. The days are evil. And somehow, though Ephesians 5.16 has always been in our scriptures, and it has always reflected the truth about the world we live in, somehow we're kind of shocked and surprised that now this is so visibly true in ways we could not have imagined too long ago. Yes, the days are evil. But the days were every bit as evil, if not more so, in Paul's day. Ecclesiastes tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. Any cursory look, even just a really quick look at the history of biblical times will tell you that the evil of our day is certainly no worse and in many ways was probably not as bad as the evil of the days in which Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus. In the verses leading up to the primary text this morning, in Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, we see more of Paul's indicators about the evil in his day, which is just as obvious today. Let's take a moment to highlight some of this. And as we read through this passage of Scripture, we're going to read through Ephesians 5, 1 through 16. And as we read through this, let's be listening for the descriptions of sin and evil this is a longer passage, so hang in there with me or read along with me. Ephesians 5, 1 through 16. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, 
has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. <coughs> so, excuse me. So here we see all of this in context now. This is what Paul wrote right before our primary text this morning. Paul lists several things that the Ephesian Christians knew were prevalent in their day. And though not exclusively so, a lot of it has to do with sexual immorality. In verse 3, Paul writes that sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you. Now this is one place where Christians have lost the public relations battle. Because these sins are unfortunately regularly named among Christians in the sense that Christians way too often fall into these kinds of sins and it becomes very public knowledge. The fact that so many very public failures of Christian leaders or political leaders who claim the name of Christ have been sexual in nature, it gives ammunition to those who would dismiss these standards as unattainable, as unrealistic, and no longer applicable in our modern world. Of course, this doesn't change in any way the truth of what Paul writes. God's righteous standards remain God's righteous standards, whether Christians fail to live up to those standards or not. Sexual immorality here in Ephesians and in most places in Scripture is from the Greek word porneia, from which we get the English word pornography. It's a catch-all phrase, and it really includes any kind of sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage between one man and one woman. Then to emphasize the seriousness of these sexual sins and other sins, Paul adds this in verse 5 and 6. We'll read these verses again. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God or Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let's also be clear here that there is redemption for the repentant sinner. Sexual sins or any sins. Let's be clear about that. But Paul is writing here of those who ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit and continue in these kinds of sins. He's writing to believers as well. He says quite clearly that these people have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He says quite clearly that the wrath of God comes upon these. So, the days are evil. But Paul is doing more than simply highlighting that reality in his day, which again, as we've noted, is just as true in ours. Note the beginning of verse 6, where he says, 
Let no one deceive you with empty words. This admonition is sandwiched between two affirmations of the fate of those who continue in these kinds of sins. And the reason for this admonition is seen easily in our day. In a moment, I'm going to read a recent quote from a Hollywood actor that illustrates for us part of the problem. But first, you might think, why should we care what Hollywood thinks about anything? Huh? And it's true, I don't care. And you shouldn't care. But the fact is that many, many people in our culture do care. They not only care about what the actors or celebrities think about the issues of our time, but they are deeply influenced by the similar messages that are given with the proverbial spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. Of course, I'm talking about movies and television and music and other popular entertainment, which sugarcoats deceptive, empty words with entertainment so that our culture tends to swallow this philosophy hook, line, and sinker. So here's one example of what we're talking about this morning. This is a quote. Fundamentalism, whether raining down terror abroad or in homilies from our home parishes, is the enemy. It is the death knell of tolerance, progress, and compromise. Fundamentalism is, in all practicality, nothing but an invitation to bigotry. The next time someone dares to say, just because I don't approve of homosexuality doesn't make me a bigot, we must all answer back, yes, it does. Not only does it make you a bigot, it makes you a criminal a danger to me, my family, my community, my city, and my country. Intolerance is not a matter of opinion. It is a call to violence. Now, Paul might look at such a quote and call these empty words. But what does he say about these empty words? He says, let no one deceive you. This is an important thing for believers, for all of us, to remember in these evil days. Let no one deceive you. What's more, Paul tells us in verse 7, Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, now you are light in the Lord. This takes us back to our opening illustration of the blind leading the blind. Blind Adrian leading blind Mariana. You remember? When the messages from our culture are deceptive and they're empty, we must, not be, we must be careful not to be led by darkness into darkness. Let's not forget what Paul wrote in the passage from Ephesians 4 that we read at the outset. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So don't live like unbelievers. Their minds are futile, worthless. They don't understand light. Their hearts are hard. They're alienated, Paul says, from the life of God. Why should we listen to them? Now, I want to note also that because of God's common grace, even our culture can sometimes speak words of truth. And words of truth are words of truth, whether they're spoken by believers or unbelievers. But to listen to the lifeless, dark messages from our culture is just like letting the blind lead the blind. Jesus made a very spiritual application to this danger of one blind person lead, leading another when he said in Luke chapter 6, verse 39, when he told them this parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Jesus was talking about teachers here, specifically, in this case, the Pharisees. And what do teachers do? In a very real 
way, teachers are life guides. They show us the way in the context of what they're teaching. In school, it may be science or art or math or history. In church, it's the application of the Word of God to our lives about morality, about behavior, about human nature, about character. But in our life in this world, our culture and our society teaches too. Whether we realize it or not, whether we admit it or not, our culture teaches us lessons about the same kinds of things that we're taught here in church. Some of it's good. Much of it is not. We must ask ourselves this question. Who's teaching me? Who am I learning from? The original language here for the word lead means to show the way. So literally or figuratively, in our context this morning, physically or spiritually. In this passage in Luke 5, as well as the passage in Matthew chapter 15, verse 14, where Jesus said, leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. The context is actually the spiritually blind religious leaders of his day, the ones who came under the most criticism from Jesus, the Pharisees. Jesus called them blind guides, and he said that the disciples should what? Leave them. In other words, don't follow them. Don't pay attention to what they're saying. Why? Because they're blind. They can't see. They can't see the spiritual truths that I will teach you, Jesus was saying, and enable you to see. And if you do follow them, Jesus says, you'll both end up falling into a pit. So this is clearly a warning, and it's pretty unequivocal. And just as it's applied to some of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, we can apply it to some religious leaders of our day. Within just a few years, we've seen a major dividing line become evident on many of these sexuality issues especially, which includes not just homosexual, homosexual behavior, but any sexual immorality. For example, we haven't even looked at, and we could, but we won't, we haven't even looked at the prevalence of cohabitation before marriage or the porn epidemic even among Christians. These are every bit as sinful, according to Scripture, as is homosexual behavior. But again, these things are just the tip of the iceberg because you know what the real issue is? It's biblical authority. It's biblical authority, and we'll take a look at that here in just a moment. But this dividing line is not just in our culture, it's in churches. There are churches and individual believers who stand strong in biblical truth, and then there are churches and individual believers that go with the cultural tide. We remember earlier we talked about kind of going with the flow. I'd also note that as one writer says, we, we sin if we call homosexuality something other than sin. We also sin if we act as if this sin cannot be forgiven. We cannot settle for truth without love, nor love without truth. The gospel settles the issue once and for all. This great moral crisis is a gospel crisis. Whether or not same-sex marriage is a political fait accompli, I don't know. What concerns me in the present hour is the temptation among Christians to go with the flow. So courage is required. We can't just go with the flow. But so is another Christian virtue, compassion. And that's a hint of where we're going to go next week. Outside the walls of the church, homosexuals are waiting to see if the Christian church has anything more to say after we declare that homosexuality is a sin. Liberal churches have redefined compassion to mean that the church changes its message to meet modern demands. They argue that to tell a homosexual he's a sinner is uncompassionate and intolerant, 
This is like arguing that a physician is intolerant because he tells a patient she has cancer. But in the culture of political correctness, this argument holds a powerful attraction. Biblical Christians know that compassion requires telling the truth and refusing to call sin something sinless. To hide or deny the sinfulness of sin is to lie, and there is no compassion in such a deadly deception. True compassion demands speaking the truth in love, and there is the problem. Far too often our courage is more evident than our compassion. In far too many cases, the options seem reduced to these, liberal churches preaching love without truth and conservative churches preaching truth without love. So the days are evil, but where does that leave us? Well, that's mostly for next week when we explore another part of walking wisely. Today we're looking at the one reason that we must walk wisely, and that's because the days are evil. Next week, we're going to look more closely at making the best use of our time, or as some of the English versions say, redeeming the time, in light of the fact that the days are evil. But I want to close with another important factor in today's look at walking wisely. Remember the things that we looked at regarding spiritual blindness? Remember that we've seen that there are churches and individuals that have pretty much caved into the cultural tides on many of the things the Bible calls sin? There's a very real foundational question to all of this. What or who is our authority? What or who is our authority? Does God have the right to determine, to decide, to define what's right and wrong? To define what's good and what's evil, what's best for us and what's not so good? Now, if we don't believe in God at all, then we have another issue to deal with. So we're starting with that assumption that there's a belief in God. But if we do... He's the creator. He's the maker. Doesn't the maker have the best understanding of what he's created? Think about this. Barb and I took a long Memorial Day weekend at the lake in Arkansas just a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about these ideas then. And she had what I thought is a really good analogy of this issue of authority. She said, well, how about when you buy a new car? And the manufacturer says, put gasoline into the car, not water not Coca-Cola, but gas, right? And what's more, the maker of the car says, don't put gasoline with more than 10% ethanol into your car. Well, you could decide to go to a state like Iowa where some stations actually do sell gasoline with 15% or more ethanol and put that into your tank, even though the manufacturer, the maker of the car, says don't do that. Or you could decide that water's cheaper, so you'll try that. But if you do there are consequences, right? Your car may not run well. Of course, if you put water in it, it won't run at all. You could end up destroying your engine. Now, emotionally, and this is where we are in our culture, but emotionally, you might say, I should be able to put any kind of gasoline, any kind of fuel into my car that I want. And of course, you can, right? But if the manufacturer says, don't put more than 10% ethanol gas into your car, and you ignore or rebel against the maker's standard, you risk the well-being of your car. And so it is with us. God made us. He knows us intimately. Certainly better than even Ford or Chevrolet knows the cars they make. And because he knows us intimately, and because he created us, he knows what's best for us. He knows the temporal and the eternal consequences of sin in our lives, and he defines sin. 
He knows what's good for us and what's bad for us. And what's more, he's revealed the most spiritually important of these things to us in his owner's manual. Now, I don't want to demean Scripture in any way by calling it just an owner's manual because clearly it's so much more than that. But understand the illustration here. God knows best because he made us, and he's told us what's best in his word. So read and understand the manual. Some of you have heard the, the acronym where Bible means basic instructions before leaving earth, right? It's the owner's manual, isn't it? The days are evil. The days are evil. We can, however, know how and why they are evil because he's told us. And because he's told us, we can walk wisely in these evil days and not as fools. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful, Father, that you've given us such clarity on what is evil and what is good, on what is good for us and what is not good for us. And Father, we look around us and we see that the days are evil, and we recognize that this is no different than it's been throughout human history, just may in some ways seem worse to us these days. But Father, we also recognize that we're here on this earth for a reason. And Father, because of that, you give us the wisdom to walk wisely. You give us the ability, Heavenly Father, to redeem the time, to make the best use of the time. So Father, in the light of the fact that the days are evil, we pray, Heavenly Father, first that you'd help us to not go with the flow. Help us to never call something that is sin anything other than sin. But Father, we also pray that we would have great wisdom in how and when and why we do that, Lord God. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we ponder these words and as we look at these words of Scripture, your holy word to us, Lord, that they would truly make an impact in our hearts and in our lives. We thank you for this time, Lord. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.